Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled The Current and Future Role of Immuno-Oncologic Agents in Early Stage, Locally Advanced and Metastatic Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, is provided by Prova Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Immunologic agents have changed the treatment landscape for non-small cell lung cancer. Are you aware of the options currently available for your patients with early stage non-small cell lung cancer, as well as emerging therapies for patients with advanced disease? This is CME on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Deborah Bruno. Here with me today, we have Dr. Gilberto Lopez and Dr. Solange Peters. Welcome, everybody. It's a great pleasure to be with you today and to be able to discuss these very important topics. Thank you for having me today. So let's get started. Dr. Peters, can you set the stage for this chapterized course by discussing the treatment of early stage non-small cell lung cancer as outlined in the NCCN guidelines? Immunotherapy has also now its role and even has become a standard in early non-small cell lung cancer in a curative intense strategy uh, combined with surgery. First of all, the classical, what we call adjuvant treatment is now encompassing and including immunotherapy. The IAM Power 10 trial has shown a benefit of atezolizumab in the adjuvant setting in patients with stage 1b to stage 3 non-small cell lung cancer after complete resection. In that trial, the patient had to receive adjuvant chemotherapy at least one cycle, and they were randomized to one year uh, of atezolizumab versus observation. The benefit in disease-free survival was observed in stage 2 and in stage 3a, and in patients with pdl one positive non-small cell lung cancer. This is the topic, and this is the subgroup of patients where the registration and the NCCN guidelines recommendations are uh, actually and currently. So stage 2 and 3 positive pdl one In Europe, the agency has looked at the relative benefit in each subgroup and decided that the benefit was really driven, or uh, I would say in the great part driven by the high PDL1 subgroup, leading to a registration in stage 2 and 3A, more than 50% PDL1 only. This is about EU. This is adjuvant. In the adjuvant setting, we still have lots of trials ongoing. We have another positive trial, the PERS, also called Keynote 091, which is showing again a benefit of DFS in stage 1B to stage 3A non-small cell lung cancer, but that time in the ITT population, meaning stage 1B to stage 3A and regardless of PDL1. But still, in US and in Europe, it hasn't led to any current registration. It will probably follow very soon. Again, many trials to come. Uh, if you look at the other strategy, we also have a very interesting neoadjuvant trial, so Checkmate 816, where three cycles of chemo nivolumab are compared to three cycles of chemo followed by surgery, and the treatment ends at surgery, so a very short induction and a short treatment, right? In that trial, a benefit of disease-free survival was observed in all patients from stage 1b to stage 3a, and regardless uh, of the uh, pd one expression. Importantly, too, the 
complete response, the pathological complete response, was going from 2% in the control arm to more than 20% in the experimental arm. So a very high magnitude of benefits, which is now registered in the NCCN guidelines and accepted by FDA, but you are still waiting for it in Europe. And of course, again, many trials to come in the neoadjuvant, perioperative, and adjuvant setting. Thank you, Dr. Peters. Now, Dr. Lopes, can you discuss some of the key endpoints for recent clinical trials in the adjuvant and neoadjuvant setting for early-stage non-small cell lung cancer? Absolutely. Adding to the current standards of adjuvant chemotherapy and EGFR inhibitor for patients with EGFR mutations, one of the most impressive and most important clinical advances has been the use of immunotherapy in the neoadjuvant and the adjuvant setting for non-small cell lung cancer. Empower 10 set the new standard of adjuvant immunotherapy for patients receiving atezolizumab after adjuvant treatment with chemotherapy, and the endpoints include disease-free survival and overall survival. In the new adjuvant trials, we have a smaller number of patients, at least for the trials that we have available up to today, and the clinical endpoints include pathological complete response and disease-free survival. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Lopes. Could you explain to us the important findings from Empower 10 adjuvant trial looking at atezolizumab for one year given to patients with resectable early stage non-small cell lung cancer after undergoing four cycles of platinum-based chemotherapy in the adjuvant setting? At the moment of publication at the Lancet and the current presentation that we had, the disease-free survival benefit is mature, and we have seen a benefit favoring the use of immunotherapy. That benefit is clinically significant with a hazard ratio of about 0.8. And what is interesting is for us to take a look at the subsets as well, and that's where we still have a little controversy of which patients benefit the most and in Empower 10, it seemed to be that the patients with PD-1 of 50% or greater are the ones that benefited the most with a hazard ratio that's highly positive. And for those patients with PD-1 of less than 1%, we didn't see a benefit. The big question today is how much do those patients that have expressions between 1 and 49 actually benefit from atezolizumab in the adjuvant setting? To contrast that, we have data from a keynote study with pembrolizumab in which the benefit actually seemed to be in patients with a PDL1 between 1 and 49%. So is this a real clinical important characteristic of these drugs, or is this just because of the luck and the draw in the trials themselves? And I think that this is an important discussion as we move forward. Thank you, Dr. Lopes. We also have the recent approval of nivolumab in the new adjuvant setting when given for three cycles in combination with platinum-based chemotherapy prior to surgical resection in patients with, again, early-stage non-small cell lung cancer. Can you describe the very important findings from Checkmate 816? The arm that received nivolumab in addition to chemotherapy had a much higher pathologic complete response and pathologic response in general in certain levels that we really hadn't seen with chemotherapy alone. And it is very heartening to see that these patients seem to have better disease-free survival when receiving nivolumab as well. And that brings us a new area of research and clinical use of these drugs in which patients that have disease that is potentially resectable up to N2, usually single station low volume, we now have the option of giving chemotherapy and immunotherapy as a new adjuvant approach as well. The results in terms of both 
pathologic response, complete response, and disease-free survival seem to favor that kind of approach. Now, is that going to be better than doing surgery first and then chemotherapy and then immunotherapy in the adjuvant setting? And the honest answer right now is that we don't know. Thank you. So I guess we can conclude that adjuvant atezolizumab has really demonstrated an improvement in disease-free survival when compared to best supportive care in patients with stage 2 through 3A tumors after adjuvant platinum chemotherapy in patients who also express PGL1 in their tumors. It has decreased the chance of recurrence or death by 34% for patients with stage 2 through 3A non-small cell lung cancer with PDL1 expression. And also that the use of three cycles of new adjuvant nivolumab in combination with a platinum doublet in patients with resectable tumors measuring four centimeters or greater and or nodal involvement, regardless of the PDL1 expression, led to superior rates of pathologic complete response and also decreased the risk for progression, disease recurrence, and death by 37%. So these two approaches are currently endorsed by NCCN guidelines. The two drugs are approved by the FDA currently and have slowly been incorporated into our standard of care in daily practice. Without a doubt. Thank you. In Chapter 2, we'll be discussing treatments based on established biomarkers as well as emerging therapies in non-small cell lung cancer. Stay tuned. Welcome back. We were just discussing the treatment of early stage non-small cell lung cancer, and now we're going to discuss immune oncologic treatments based on established biomarkers as well as emerging therapies in non-small cell lung cancer. Dr. Peters, can you talk about HER2 established biomarker in non-small cell lung cancer in the current era? HER2 as a biomarker is well known from the breast cancer colleagues, right, where they look at amplification of HER2 using immunohistochemistry or FISH analysis. In lung cancer, this is completely different. We also look at HER2, but currently we don't look at expression or amplification. By the way, they are not very well correlated in non-small cell lung cancer. We look at a third way to uh, modify HER2, which again is not correlated to, with expression and amplification, which is the mutation. We look at insertions in the exon 20 of the HER2 gene. Because in lung cancer, this is what we call a driver. So it leads to the, all the characteristics and parameters of the malignant phenotype of the cancer cell. So this is where in lung cancer, this is a very interesting target, usually found in never smoker, in adenocarcinoma, and really has led to many potential treatment option assessments in that specific disease entity. Keep in mind, it's quite rare. It's between 1% and 3% of non-small cell lung cancer only. We have been trying classical treatments, dacomitinib, afatinib, which are, uh, I would say, herb family blockers, uh, and also a HER2 blocker with very poor response rate, I would say, of one digit, uh, some digits persons, right, less than 10 persons. We've been looking at new drugs like posiotinib, but posiotinib is extremely toxic. So we've been looking at many agents leading to difficulties in administration or only unsatisfactory response rates. Today, 
we have a new standard. And the new standard for this rare disease entity uh, is trastuzumab deruxtecan. Trastuzumab deruxtecan is a moiety of a HER2 monoclonal antibody. It is the same as the trastuzumab used in breast cancer, the Herceptin, uh, binding to the HER2 receptor, which is mutated in lung cancer, and a very strong component of chemo, the deruxtecan. Uh, and this antibody drug conjugate has led in how to mutate in non-small cell lung cancer to a response rate which is more than 50%, 55%. So toxicity profile is perfectly manageable with a specific caution to be given to potential inflammatory lung disease, but we have been learning how to use it. And of course, uh, we will uh, learn more by treating more patients. Interestingly, this treatment has been evaluated today in the second line setting after the usual platinum-based chemotherapy, plus minus IO. And in the future, we hope we can also use it frontline, but at the time being, it will be registered in second line for initial trial design. But to me, it has become the standard of care in her 2 mutated non-small cell lung cancer. Thank you. Now, Dr. Lopes, can you please discuss some emerging targets for non-small cell lung cancer, focusing specifically on immunotherapies and antibody drug conjugates? In immunotherapy, we have a number of clinical trials that are moving forward. We have classically used CTLA-4, PD-1, and pd one as our main targets, but we have new emerging agents. For instance, we have an anti-LAG-3 that has been approved in melanoma that is currently being tested in lung cancer. And we also have anti-target agents that unfortunately have had some negative data, so we don't know how many of these new agents are going to be moving forward. We also have new studies looking at checkpoint inhibitors that are beyond the usual lymphocyte or antigen-dependent, antigen-presenting cell tumor interactions, but also looking into macrophage function and so on. So there's a wealth of new agents in the immunotherapy realm that will be coming forward to clinical trials and hopefully eventually to the clinic. It's also very exciting to see the development of antibody drug conjugates in lung cancer as well. We had Dr. Peters discussing anti-HER2 therapies that we have been using in breast cancer for quite some time, and now we have available in the U.S. as agents for anti-HER2 therapy non-small cell lung cancer. And we have two other main targets that are worth mentioning. One is HER3, and the other one is TROC2. So HER3 has become one of the very hopeful avenues for us to be able to overcome resistance to EGFR mutant-specific treatments, such as ozimertinib that is currently used in the first line. But tritumab deruxtecan seems to be active with a response rate somewhere between 35 and 40% for patients that have been through ozimertinib as the first-line agent and had disease progression. And this is an agent that will likely start to see more data coming forward in the near future. The other target that we're very excited about is TROP2. TROP2 is expressed in about two-thirds of adenocarcinomas, three-quarters of squamous cell carcinomas, and a little bit less for endocrine, neuroendocrine tumors. But we are now seeing the development of antibody conjugates using TROP2 as the target. We see response rates, and we have large randomized trials that are ongoing, and hopefully will show us an established role eventually for these combinations of antibody and drug conjugates. Thank you, Dr. Lopes. One of the interesting features of some of the antibody drug conjugates, specifically the ones targeting TROP2, is the ability to work on patients regardless of actionable genomic alterations. It's interesting to see activity in patients with EGFR out rearrangement, both for 
daroporumab, deruxtecan, and sasetuzumab, govitecan. Are you enthusiastic about the potential activity of those drugs for those specific patients, subpopulations? Absolutely. It's a very attractive way of creating new drugs in which you really target the cancer by using the specific monoclonal antibodies and having a payload that if we were to give SN38 or the other agents that we are using as the actual chemotherapy attached to these antibody drug conjugates, these are drugs that have so much toxicity that if we use them in a more classic way, as we use docetaxo and other chemotherapy agents, you know, toxicity would be so much that we wouldn't be able to have a lot of activity. So these are very exciting drugs, and we're looking forward to seeing them actively used in the clinic. So Dr. Lopes, daroporumab deruxtecan is really advancing in terms of demonstrating great response in phase one trials. Now moving on to phase three trials, we actually have a phase three trial currently open that is enrolling patients after initial chemotherapy and immunotherapy and randomizing them to docetaxel or daroporumab What do you know or what can you share with us in terms of preliminary results from those studies? What we know about Tropion Lung 2 trial is that we have seen preliminary data showing overall response rate in the nearly 40% range with a medium follow-up in the study of about six to seven months. And for patients who received the triplet therapy of DATO plus Pembro plus platinum chemotherapy, there's a disease control rate of 84%. So these are very, very promising early data that we hope to see confirmed and we hope to see expanded as the clinical trial matures and more data are presented. Thank you. In Chapter 3, we'll be discussing regional considerations in the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer. Stay tuned. So for those of you who are just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Deborah Bruno, and here with me today are Drs. Gilberto Lopez and Solange Peters. We're discussing the current and future role of immunocologic agents in early stage, locally advanced, and metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. Welcome back. After discussing immunocologic treatments for established biomarkers and emerging agents in non-small cell lung cancer, let's uh, now talk a bit about global considerations when it comes to treating non-small cell lung cancer. Dr. Peters, what are some regional considerations when diagnosing and treating non-small cell lung cancer patients? Thinking about oncogene addictions and beyond that biomarkers, including PDL1, there are probably two challenges today that the community is facing. And I'm in Switzerland, many colleagues are in the US. Maybe we, we do uh, feel like these biomarkers are easily available when we work in academic settings. It's important to keep in mind that even in our countries, but even more importantly, Across countries and across continents, the availability today to this molecular characterization is very poor. We just have performed uh, in uh, the European Society for Medical Oncology a survey to see what is the accessibility to this biomarkers assessment. And what we observe is, first of all, the accessibility is pretty poor in some countries, particularly for NGS, next generation sequencing. And more importantly, very often they are not reimbursed, meaning that it's only reserved to out-of-pocket payments, which of course makes the accessibility limited and also probably unequal by nature. So the first thing we can improve is to make sure that the biomarkers which are needed to make treatment decisions are available wherever we work in Europe to start, 
in our countries, but also maybe beyond. So second interesting thing in our environment where we feel like we have accessibility, for example, to early diagnosis, biomarkers, and NGS, the question is when to perform this test. And I think today the emergence of new neoadjuvant adjuvant treatment in oncogene addiction and also in uh, unmutated non-smoothed lung cancer is raising the question about reflex testing. Should we test at the first biopsy, even in early disease? Should we have NGS in all patients before a surgery, for example? This kind of questions, reflex testing in all patients across all stages of non-smoothed lung cancer is probably the question to solve for our, I would say, wealthy environments where we have NGS. So all of these questions need political move and also reimbursement coverage for all of these accessibility purposes. Yes, it's certainly interesting and to a certain extent alarming to see disparities when it comes to diagnosing and uh, testing patients with non-small cell lung cancer. We currently have a vast array of actionable genomic alterations. Actually, now we have 11 subpopulations of non-small cell lung cancers that harbor genomic alterations that we can target with FDA-approved medications. And in order to identify those patients, we certainly need to test our patients comprehensively. And currently, the best way to do so is by using next-generation sequencing platforms. Recently, we have seen data within the United States that is alarming. A retrospective study from the U.S. Oncology Network Community Practices documented that less than 50% of patients with advanced metastatic non-small cell lung cancer undergoing therapy between 2018 and 2020 were actually being tested for the five biomarkers that were needed at that time in order to make best decisions when it comes to first-line therapy. Our group has demonstrated, too, that in introspective analysis of the flat tire data set, looking at approximately 15,000 patients with advanced metastatic non-small cell lung cancer from 2017 through 2020, less than 50% of the patients underwent NGS testing prior to first-line therapy. We also saw racial disparities when it comes to NGS testing. That is specific study, 36.6% of the patients of white race underwent NGS testing compared to 29% of the patients of black race. So this is certainly very concerning. Dr. Lopes, what do you see as major challenges when it comes to comprehensive biomarker testing in patients with non-small cell lung cancer? not only within the U.S., but also globally. We have now been doing genomic testing for more than a decade, and it's become ever more important as we have a larger number of targets and specific therapies that we can use to improve the quality and length of life of our patients. When we look outside of the U.S., the situation is even worse than what we are sharing here today. We looked at data for Brazil a few years ago showing that fewer than 20% of patients we're getting tested for EGFR alone. And the main reason that happened specifically in the public sector was because patients did not have access. Even if they had tested, they did not have access to specific therapies that would block the EGFR mutation. We also have seen that not just in Brazil, but in a number of countries in Latin America and around the world. And this is a gap that continues to grow, especially as we have more targets and more therapies, as mentioned. We also have biological differences, it's well known that Asian patients tend to have mutation rates in the 40 to 50% range. What we sometimes forget in this country is that Hispanics 
have about a prevalence of 25% of EGFR mutations, and blacks have about half of what we see in whites, so just around 5 to 8%. So there's disparities in how we are testing patients, but there's also biological differences in the prevalence of mutations that we see in different populations. We, without a doubt, need to continue working on making genomic testing more widespread, and access to medications also has to improve, especially outside of the U.S. Thank you for your input. Well, this has been an excellent conversation, very dynamic. You know, to summarize, we now have the ability to use immunotherapy in the neoadjuvant and adjuvant settings for patients with early-stage non-small cell lung cancer with the recent approvals of atezolizumab and nivolumab in those specific settings. We are very excited to see new immunopologic agents coming down the pipeline, targeting other alterations such as HER3 and TROP2, as Dr. Lopes has uh, discussed. Dr. Peters really explained well the role of trastuzumab deruxtecan currently approved for treatment of patients with HER2 actionable alterations following first-line therapy. And we also discussed here the concerns when it comes to performing broad, comprehensive genomic testing for patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer, not only in the U.S., but also globally. So today, we discussed several biomarkers and immunocologic agents. It's important to understand that this is not an inclusive list as it relates to the NCCN guidelines for treatment of non-small cell lung cancer. When we speak about targeting HER3 and uh, TROP2, we want to make sure that uh, the audience understands that those are upcoming potential treatment strategies and not yet approved by the FDA and not endorsed by NCCN guidelines. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank our audience for listening in and thank you, Dr. Peters. Thank you, Dr. Lopes, for joining me and for sharing all of your valuable insights. It was great speaking with you today. Thank you. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Prova Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash innovations in oncology. Thank you for listening.